0: Welcome to the Nutrition Awareness Podcast, co hosted
1: by yours truly, Kate Richardson and Megan Pachecki. We're two registered dietitians here to make your life easier by debunking diet myths, sharing scientific information about nutrition, and keeping you motivated to reach your goals. We want to teach you
0: everything we know by giving you real life examples of how we've helped our combined thousands of clients transform their lives, lose weight, and get healthy without
1: having to go on another cookie cutter diet. On this podcast, we'll be giving you our best advice, strategies, and mindset shifts so you too can reach your goals using food and most importantly, enjoy the process.
0: Disordered eating is becoming such a buzzword And I feel like there's a lot of confusion among people on whether they have disordered eating patterns or whether they have an eating disorder and what it means to have disordered thoughts around food. But most importantly, if you do recognize you have disordered patterns and thoughts around food, how to overcome them to adopt more of a uh, normal relationship with food. So today I'm really excited because I'm talking with Morgan, a licensed professional counselor, all about disordered thoughts around eating and food and sharing some tools with you guys if you recognize that maybe you have an unhealthy relationship with food. So Morgan, welcome to the Nutrition Awareness Podcast. You're my first guest in a long time, so I'm so excited to be talking with
1: you today. Yeah, thank you so, so much for inviting me to be on the podcast. I'm so honored to be on here as well and just share a little bit of my knowledge with your listeners and hopefully help some people out. Yay, I'm sure you will. So tell us a
0: little bit about your professional background and basically why you're credible to talk about these kinds of things.
1: Sure. So I am a licensed professional counselor in the state of Wisconsin. So for all your listeners, I'm sure you have a lot of Florida people. Um, I'm from Wisconsin. um, So that is just our license up here. And it differs state by state, but it basically means I'm a counselor. I can diagnose and treat any mental health um, disorders, um, whether that is an eating disorder disorder, depression, anxiety, things like that. Um, I have a master's in counseling. I went to UW Stout in uh, Wisconsin. I have concentrations in eating disorder, in substance use, in child and adolescent therapy. So just kind of across the board, I have lots of information about different areas in the counseling field. Um, And essentially in my program, um, we we study the ins and outs of, you know, why do people do the things that they do? (laughs) That's kind of the the phrase that we always talked. about. About in their program is why do people do what they do? And really eating disorders are just a part of that is, you know, eating disorders are, to put it briefly, another coping skill of, you know, underlying emotional issues and things that we've been through. Um, so, it's, yeah.
0: You know, I love that. So first of all, you're the real deal. It sounds like you really work with a wide array of, array of people. What percentage, I mean, I don't know if you could guesstimate this, what percentage of people do you work with either have eating disorders or have disordered thoughts around food?
1: Exact percentage. I'm not entirely sure. Um, Let me think about that for a second. I, for the most part, I work with the younger population. I work with a lot of Teenagers, college students, young adults, um, and I would say a good majority of my clients are females as well, just because mm-hmm. a lot of times people gravitate towards you know the same gendered um, therapist. So. I would say a majority of the girls that I work with have had disordered eating thoughts or a lot of times as well, we find out, you know, they come in with depression, anxiety. We find out underlying under that they've also been engaging in some disordered eating or just had some thoughts about food in their body. And that also plays into just their mental health as well. So I would say. Probably 60 to 70 percent have had some type of thoughts of that or issues with it in the past.
0: That seems accurate, it's such a big, scary number. But you know what's weird is I don't know if you find this, but in my personal life, just as a young female in my whole life, I never felt like anyone talked about disorder eating. I don't feel like eating disorders were normal. I think diet culture, if you will, kind of masked some of maybe not masked, but made it socially acceptable to have disordered eating thoughts, to say things like, Oh, I'm not eating carbs right now or oh I'm on a diet and it was a really easy way to hide disordered eating thoughts. But as a as a teenager when I was in the midst of my disordered eating and through college and young adulthood, it just wasn't talked about. But then working as a dietitian and maybe you see this too as, as a counselor, it comes out all the time. I feel like probably about the same, 60 to 70% of my female clients have had some kind of history or battle with an eating disorder or disordered eating before. And like, nobody freaking talks about it. Or maybe now they do. I feel like now with social media and and the younger generation, but nobody talked about it back in the early 2000s when that's when I was going through it.
1: No, I would, I would agree. I think, you know, in the last five years. I think there's been more conversation about Mm -hmm. it. And like you said, maybe it's just because we are both now in this industry. But yeah, I think, you know, the diet culture umbrella kind of hides all those other things. And um, it just doesn't let that be talked about.
0: Yeah. So curious, when you're working with
1: teenagers and
0: young adults, have you noticed over time, or maybe with different age groups, perhaps the Generation Z compared to millennials, any differences in attitudes around Food, body image, or does it seem pretty consistent across the board?
1: Um, I would say it seems. I would say it seems more like people my age. I guess I'm 26. Um, are are more wrapped up in dieting and things like that, like finding specific diets, things that work. Um, whereas, you know, maybe the the younger generation right now, teenagers, high schoolers right now, more just think about their body and just confidence, I feel like is lower overall. So uh, I guess I am haven't looked into exactly why that might be occurring, but I think that's kind of the trend that I've seen.
0: I would agree. You, it's almost exactly what you said. When I have an 18, 19, 20-year-old girl come into my office, the way she talks about what she's trying to achieve she uses totally different lingo. She would not say burn fat, fat loss. She would never call it a diet. I mean, that word that I've observed with the younger generation is pretty evil compared to like you, I'm 27. uh, All the girls who are millennials and especially my Gen X and even some Boomer clients, diets are totally normal. They talk about burning fat. They'll grab their excess body fat in my office and show me like, this is what I'm trying to, to burn off. I would never see that with a younger client. In fact, what's interesting that I've noticed with the Generation Z's is they speak so highly of body positivity and that whole movement and confidence and loving yourself for who you are. They're very careful about their words, but then they're still going through a very similar struggle.
1: They're just using different vocabulary to paint the picture. One hundred percent. I completely agree with that, and I feel like I sound like a millennial saying this, but social media is so prevalent with that age group, the the younger age group, and I think you know that's a big reason. There, there is the body positivity movement, but then there's also all these Instagram models and all these things that these girls just compare themselves to, and it's it makes me sad.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I can't even, I I mean, I feel like I experience it a little bit too, just being on social media. I don't, I don't know about you, but it's like you can scroll through your feed and get eight different messages. From eight different people you look up to. You see one woman who is really confident in her body. She might be on the plus size if you look at it from a close perspective. And she's really confident and happy. And you're like, yeah, empowerment. And then you scroll down and you see somebody modeling Dior fashion. And she's got a very thin body. She's got a size two. And then you start to feel kind of bad about yourself. And you compare yourself. And I just think about when social media became really prevalent back when we were teenagers and in college and how there was never any talk about loving your body for its size it was more of fitness instagram and fitspo Mm -hmm. or there was a lot of you know just comparison of of your body type so i feel like it's moving in a good direction sometimes Mm -hmm. i think from a dietitian perspective i get a little bit of a bone to pick because i don't feel like many people are just genuinely talking about what healthy eating looks like And they're talking more about you know body positivity only or Mm -hmm. something a bit more extreme like fitness and i don't know it's just a a mixed up space and i can only imagine how overwhelming it is for a young developing mind
1: absolutely i I think you're right that it seems black and white or or a little bit divided at least of it's either the body, body positivity love yourself love everything about yourself eat whatever or the extreme fitness and there is a gray space there's so much is we just got to make that voice a little bit louder in the world
0: so i want to clarify for listeners that first of all this whole podcast we're not going to be diagnosing or providing specific medical advice this is going to be more of a conversation based on what we've seen as professionals and also just to give you guys some tools if you do recognize that you have some disordered eating thoughts So Morgan, since you're able to diagnose eating disorders and as a registered dietitian, I'm not able to make diagnoses. I can help with disordered eating patterns, um, but I'm not a dietitian who is specially trained in eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia. You're able to diagnose. So could you explain to listeners the differences between eating disorders and perhaps disordered eating or the different types of disorders?
1: Yeah. So when I diagnose a legitimate eating disorder. I I look at the frequency, I look at the threshold, I look at is this having an extreme effect on social life, work life, Um, just is it interfering with your day-to-day life to the point that it is having an effect on your mental health and I mean, obviously there's there's anorexia, there's bulimia, there's binge eating disorder. And I could go through all the criteria for those, of course, but it's really just how extreme is this in your life at this point? Is it causing problems in a lot of areas? Is it, you know, you have thoughts of wanting to restrict food maybe a couple of days a week that that's probably more disordered eating. Um, mm-hmm. Again, it's, it's the extremity, it's the frequency, it's the threshold. And uh, do you have more thoughts on that specifically? I would say it's a spectrum. It's such a
0: spectrum. I I did a podcast episode. I'll have to link which one it was here about the spectrum of binge eating disorder, because it's so hard to diagnose a binge eating disorder uh, when it's such a spectrum where somebody might have episodes where they binge eat and they feel really guilty and shameful about it, but it's not interfering with their day-to-day life. It might interfere with their mental health to a degree. And so they just feel really confused and they're not sure if they have an eating disorder. They're not sure if they have a they know they have an issue and that they don't enjoy it, but then they also don't know, is this a normal pattern? Are other people doing it? A lot of people feel really guilty and shameful so they don't speak about it. They don't go out and seek help. I think it's really a spectrum. And if anybody listening to this is unsure if they have a full-blown eating disorder or any kind of disordered eating, they should probably go speak to a licensed mental health professional, a dietitian, somebody to help them move in the right direction. And if they do need a diagnosis, get the diagnosis and get treatment because if it's starting to interfere with your day-to-day life and your quality of life, you need to nip it in the butt and treat it as what it is, which is, you know, a, a psych- psychology or psychiatric disorder.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, Anytime I work with someone who does have a diagnosed eating disorder, I always pair therapy with working with a dietitian because mm-hmm. there are things that I don't know about eating and eating patterns and food and how it affects your body like you do and um, like Megan does. So I, I always like to pair that with therapy. I think that's mm-hmm. the best combo.
0: Agreed, agreed. I have a lot of my clients who do have binge eating disorder tendencies or disorder eating thoughts who are also seeing a therapist, because like you had said earlier, I feel like many times it goes hand in hand with anxiety or depression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I find a lot of times, and tell me if this is your experience, uh, a woman who is suffering from something like binge eating, whether it's a binge eating disorder, or whether they're having, you know, infrequent binges, but it's happening enough where they start to feel guilt or shame about it. Typically, there's something else going on in their life that's causing a lot of distress, a lot of anxiety, and they find that turning to food and overeating food is almost like trading one form of suffering, whether that's a, an emotional suffering, whether it's a suffering within an interpersonal relationship, maybe just discontentment with life, boredom, apathy, some kind of suffering for a brief moment of pleasure where they're eating and they're getting that dopamine hit and they're feeling really good. And then they experience that post binge or post overeating episode feeling. where They just feel guilt and shame and they feel physical discomfort. And it's almost just like a less extreme form of suffering compared to what they're trying to run away from.
1: Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. People use food or restricting food, for that matter, as a way to cope with emotional suffering or emotional pain, emotional distress, just just anything like that. And I can talk more about coping as well a little bit later when we talk about patterns and things like that. But absolutely. it's And when I say coping skill, I mean, a lot of people probably don't know exactly what the definition of coping skill is. Really, a coping skill is anything that we use, whether it is food, whether it is a substance, whether it's going for a walk, whether it's petting a dog, it's anything that we use to get through an emotional state. And, and mm-hmm. food is food, and restricting food is just one of those things, like you said, especially uh, with binge eating disorder, it's a dopamine dump. Every time you have a piece of chocolate, every time you have that food and you get so wrapped up in it in the moment, it's, it's like your caveman brain takes over in a way. <laughs> yeah,
0: the caveman brain. You know, one thing I share with my clients who come in and start to just feel so guilty about turning to food, because there's such a stigma behind turning to food as a coping mechanism, is trying to reframe the whole entire situation. I say something like, well, you know, when you're a kid, you don't have as many options for coping mechanisms. You might not be able to think through things. You don't have access to a lot of things that adults have access to cope with. Because a lot of times adults can find relatively dangerous coping mechanisms or other life-threatening mechanisms like alcohol, drugs, gambling, etc. So as a kid, you can learn really young that, oh, food feels really good. Mom and dad are fighting. Well, food feels good. It feels really good to eat a bunch of food or restrict food and get attention that way, or feel in control from restricting food. So it's almost an innocent, it seems innocent when you're a kid, because it's the only thing that you really have access to as a way to cope, and you learn from a really young age, food feels good, or restricting food gives me some sort of power, and you carry that into adulthood. And if you compare that to other coping mechanisms, it's a relatively innocent one, and one that shouldn't have as much shame attached to it, even though I understand, You don't want to cope with food all the time because how it physically and mentally makes you feel you shouldn't beat yourself up about turning to food. It's very natural. It's very uh, animalistic, if you will, of our our primitive nature.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I like to talk to people about, you know, coping skills are neither bad or good. They just Mm -hmm. are. It's what you found at some point in your life worked really well for you. And so you, you kept on with that. It doesn't make you a bad person for using that. It doesn't make your coping skill bad either. It just is. And I, a lot of times I say to my clients, of course you are like, of course, that's what you're doing right now. Like it's, and that's fine, but that's exactly why you're here is to figure out, okay, why am I using this? And do I want to keep doing this? Is this serving me? For what- why am
0: I using this and do I want to keep doing this? I think that's brilliant. I think digging into the root cause of a lot of our coping mechanisms or why we do things is so helpful. I want to know your opinion. I, I kind of have this little mm-hmm. mental, maybe comparison in my head, spending 20% of the time digging and exploring why or where this unwanted eating behavior came from, but spending 80% of the time moving forward, figuring out, how to redirect yourself, new coping mechanisms that serve you in a better way. What are your thoughts on
1: that? Can you say the
0: question again? Sorry. So I just want to know if you think that there should be maybe a 50-50 split time on how much time you spend exploring where the unwanted eating behaviors stem from versus how to move forward. Or do you think uh, there's more time, that there's more value spent spending uh, more time on one side of the equation, if that makes sense.
1: I think it really depends. <laughs> and that's probably not exactly the answer you were hoping for, um, or maybe the listeners were hoping for, but it really depends on what the person comes in with. Are they, are they ready to make changes? That's the thing. In the world of counseling, we talk about there's, there's kind of three main things that lead to change, and that is you have to be aware of where you're at and what's going on. You have to be motivated to make change and you have to be responsible. Meaning when I say responsible, meaning yes, I'm responsible for the choices that I've made. So it kind of depends. Do they come in with those three things? Do we have to build those things up? How much trauma essentially do they come in with? And I say trauma again with a grain of salt because, you know, maybe your trauma isn't one big car accident or you know parental abuse maybe it's just little t traumas over the years of just like little things built up so it, it really depends on what do they come in with how motivated are they you know how much work have they already done and go from there but i think building on both of those things at the same time is important i mean Mm -hmm. i can you know process people's past, help them figure out why they do what they do essentially but if i don't send them out with various things to think about and do homework uh, Mm -hmm. or tasks i like to say uh, people don't like the word homework all the time um Then, you know, they're not going to get anywhere because I I meet with someone for 50 minutes once a week, if that. So it's got to be things to build on outside of therapy as well.
0: That is such a good point. It's when you're in that room with somebody, a lot of the time spent talking about perhaps the awareness piece is really valuable because they might not be as motivated to talk, to think about those things on their own. It's really hard to just sit by yourself in your own thoughts and reflect on past traumas. I mean, there's a reason we like to suppress those things with things like food, because it doesn't feel good to sit there and be like, Oh my God, like what did I go through as a young child or as a young adult or any time in your life that made me do this. But when you're in that room speaking with a counselor or with your dietitian, you're kind of, lovingly forced to and Mm -hmm. then you're right that third piece that responsibility piece i always think of it as that accountability piece Mm -hmm. of going out into the real world and applying a lot of things that you talk about Mm -hmm. just curious in your own life and you can share as much or as little as you want i know that the way we had connected is you had heard my story about my own disordered eating have you ever had personal experience with eating disorders or disordered thoughts about food
1: I I definitely have I uh, um, I'll be very transparent I was a college athlete and I've been an athlete three sport athlete in high school went to UW Stout ran track and college Um, and it, it kind of all started you know my freshman year I did the typical college freshman thing ate in the dorms partied on the weekends and I did not meet my athletic goals that I really wanted to meet for that year. I had the previous year in high school, I had done really well. I was a high jumper um, and a a triple jumper. And then I went to college and engaged in all those kind of unhealthy patterns and did not do very well in my sport. And I, you know, at the end of that season, I thought, I got to make some changes. If I'm going to spend, you know, two thirds of my college time engaging in practice and lifting and track meets and with this collegiate track team, I need to do something about that. And so that's kind of where it all started for me was I said, okay, why don't I download my fitness pal? And I <laughs> I can imagine that's where a lot of people start is, you know, that app. And it, it really just led to a lot of, I feel like it changed my brain because I can no longer really think about food without thinking about numbers and i feel like in the last couple of years i've really started to not think about those numbers but you know as a you know at the end of my freshman year of college getting into those patterns and saying okay my job as a high jumper is to be as small as possible and as fit as possible and i have to hoist my ass over a bar <laughs> into the air and bend and snap. You know, it's so much about your body, and I, I think that's then where it led to it. And I think all throughout college, I, I went through phases where I was like, Ugh, I don't need my fitness pal. I don't need to do this. I can just eat. And then, you know, final exams would come around, and I'd be like, Oh, I'm stressed. I need to, you know, cope with this. Or the season's really getting into full swing. I need to cope with this. And I would download the app again and think, Okay, mm-hmm. I gotta really get into shapes so that I can do well. I, I mean who doesn't want to do well in the sport that they put, you know, a lot of their life and time into. And so, um, you know, that was kind of where it started. And after I graduated, I I did very well in track throughout college after that, but of course, you know, that's why I got, um, into those patterns. But then after track ended is where it kind of dipped down even worse in, I lost track. I lost this thing that I had had for eight plus years of my life and it was like well now what now i don't have this thing to keep me in shape and so i i really dove into just kind of some disordered eating at that point and um but at the same time i also started grad school for for being a counselor so it was kind of you know they kind of blended together and i started to learn about all of this And, you know, I talked to, um, my program director, he was amazing. So this is kind of my shout out to him. He really helped me through some of that and helped me realize like a lot of what I was doing. And then, like I said, I was taking classes at the same time. I was learning about, okay, why am I doing this? This is not the healthiest for me. And I feel like I I didn't, right. I kind of worked through it on my own. I, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, but I think the biggest thing is that the voice is always there. Like that voice saying, ooh, you know, you're you're losing a little bit of control right now in your life. Why don't we take control by counting what you eat and, you know, trying to restrict your food a little bit? And it's like, no, (laughs) no, don't go back to that. And, you know, in the moment, your brain's like, yeah, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Why don't I do that? It's like no, 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 don't do that for all of these other reasons. And so it's, it's been a journey, that's for sure. It's it's been a journey, and you know that's really the brief overview of it, not going super in depth, but that's part of my story.
0: <laughs> oh, well, that's a beautiful part of the story, and I thank you for sharing that because it's hard but so necessary for all of us who have gone through those kinds of things to just speak the truth to normalize having a complex with food. And you said a few things that really stood out to me. One of them was when you lost track and you were like, okay, now what? And it was just sort of this whole new phase in your life. And you remembered that restricting and using my fitness pal and dieting feels good. It makes you feel like you've got your feet on the ground because in the past your brain had learned, oh, when I count calories, when I watch everything that I eat, something positive happens you get this like almost immediate gratification of feeling like you're in control or perhaps the scale moves or your performance improves so your brain kind of learns to just focus on that positive aspect and you naturally just sort of forget about all of the negative parts that come along with that being totally sucked into your phone tracking everything that you eat feeling anxious around food i don't know about you but i had a lot of experience where I would purposely seclude myself from specific events, and I didn't partake in a lot of things that I really enjoyed because of fear of food or having to track the food, the anxiety of thinking like, oh my god, I have to plug in this Mexican meal into my fitness pal. How am I going to do that? It's just easier if I don't go. So your brain just kind of forgets about all of the horrible things that went along with it, and just remembers like, oh, I lost five pounds when I tracked my calories for a month. And then you had said something else too, which was that you kind of out But the voice is always there. And I think that is so important because whenever we go through, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, a developing stage in our life where our brain is rapidly, you know, producing new brain cells and wiring itself to think a certain way in our young adolescence up to adulthood we learn certain patterns that almost become ingrained in our brain is the way I like to think of it. I always think of it like a computer operating system. We're just kind of coded to think a certain way. And so those little codes and those little thoughts are going to pop up, but as you outgrow them, you have to practice the skill of just rewiring your brain to think a new way. So I experience the same thing still to this day, whenever I have the trigger or the urge to get on my fitness pal and track a bunch of things, I'm like, wait a minute, this is a sign that something is coming up for me. And this is an old pattern, an old coping mechanism that's reemerging because I, I have dealt with both coping with food and coping with restriction. I'm like, something's coming up here. I know this is a signal. I need to put down my food tracker. I need to put away my measuring scale and spend some time redirecting myself, coping and addressing what is actually coming up for me and then that little urge to restrict disappears until next time and then i just repeat the pattern and it becomes a lot less frequent and stressful because i know how to manage it Mm -hmm.
1: yeah I, i really like what you said about just the developmental part of our lives and how much learning those types of patterns at those points of our lives can just ingrain that in our brain like oh this is normal this is what you know this is how it's supposed to be and yeah then that voice definitely does come back and is there because it's trying to say, Hey, let's, let's get that, that control back. Let's cope with this right now. And, you know, I, I remember there was one day I was, I was sitting on my couch and I was trying to figure out, okay, what did I eat for breakfast? What did I do? And it was just sucking up so much of my time. And I was like, dang, I have so much to study for. Cause obviously I was in grad school at that time. I have so much to do. I have to work tonight. I have this. And I'm like, this sucks. This takes up so much of my time. And I just remember thinking, I'm done. Like, I I can't do this anymore again. Like, you know, there, there's obviously been different points where that's happened, but I think that was kind of the final tipping point. And I, I think that was like in my first year of grad school, I was, you know, thinking about that, but so it was early on, but it was just a moment that I won't forget. It was just like, this sucks. (laughs) I can't do this.
0: You know, one thought that I had too, though, is, you know how you were talking about every time you have a client come in, it always depends on how much time you spend with the awareness and the motivation. And the, and the same thing goes with nutrition, because the reason why I recommend a lot of people speak with a registered dietitian if they're not sure, is there is some times where tracking your food in certain mediums, whether it is on an app or whether it's just in a food <laughs> mood journal, which we are big proponents of, can be helpful, but you want to talk to a professional and see if it's going to be something that's triggering for you. I would say I'd have two different types of clients where right? I have somebody come in who has never had a food complex in their life. Uh, they just all of a sudden turned 40 years old and they started gaining a bunch of weight and their old eating habits that they got away with for so long just don't work for them anymore because their bodies changed, their lives changed. And using a tracker for a while as a tool to really see what they're eating and understand the impact of food on their body, really, really helpful. And it can help me see what they're eating. But then if I have somebody who's 25 come in and she's had a similar story as me or you and has gone through a bunch of yo-yo dieting and restrictive eating patterns and disordered thoughts, that would be where using a fitness tracker or a calorie counter is really inappropriate. So... I just wanted to say that because I don't want to get on here and demonize specific trackers because it's really worked for a lot of my clients, but that can also really put people in a dark hole. Mm -hmm. You know, just curious because um, we talked a lot about these certain, you know, eating disorder tendencies and some of the things that trigger eating disorders and disordered thoughts. What are some tools that you have found to be really helpful for clients with disordered eating patterns, to help them find either new coping mechanisms or redirect their thoughts in a more proactive way.
1: Yeah, I you know I there's so many different tools, and again, it just depends on the person and what they respond to. But the biggest thing that I want to go back to of what I had said is just building that awareness, uh, because without that, change will not happen. If you're not aware of what's going on, and you know, like I said, change isn't going to happen. And going back to just the realm of eating disorders and disordered eating as well is so often people identify with their disordered eating. And like I had said, being an athlete, that was my identity. So a lot of times people find that, wow, these disordered eating patterns aren't serving me, but then it's having to grieve the loss essentially of the person that they were, whether that's as an athlete, as a bodybuilder, as a smaller-bodied person, as you know, a health nut, someone that's really healthy, um, so it's it's grieving the loss essentially of the person that they were. So, a lot of what I do and what people can do on their own as well is just some grief work. Whether that's you know journaling to themselves or seeing a counselor to talk through that, talking with a loved one about just that grief that you have about the person that you don't want to be anymore essentially or that that part of you that's not going to be there anymore
0: that is brilliant I've never thought of it as grief loss I've always thought of it as changing your identity but I've always missed or skipped over that mourning of who you were I know that I've experienced something similar like when you were an athlete and you lost that and it was that grieving period I've experienced things similar in my life too and I was was like oh my god like I used to be this kind of person, and it's okay to recognize that as you go through different stages in your life it's natural that you become a new person and it can be also a really fun opportunity to reshape who you want to be so it's okay to grieve who you once were and then also be excited about who you're becoming and decide what kinds of patterns and what kind of relationship with food you want to have in this new phase Mm
1: -hmm. yeah absolutely and i think some of that grief is is what keeps people stuck at times in that because they the thought of change is or the motivation to change is lower than the motivation to stay who they were but that that's where you know you and i can come in and say but but look at the the grass on the other side Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) look at look at what can come of this essentially and um
0: you know yeah. what that reminds me of is like that guy from high school who always relives his glory days, you know, like the varsity football player, and now he's like 40 at the bar with a beer bell, and he's like, <laughs> championship game in seventy-five. It's like, no, dude, like move on. Like there, there's greener, the grass is greener. Yes, you know,
1: absolutely. It's another <laughs> tool. Um, Well, we had talked about um, the voice essentially and kind of the voice creeping in of, hey, we should restrict food. And off of that, I just wanted to say, being able to identify your trigger. And for those who don't know counseling language and lingo, a trigger is just anything that then can trigger an emotional state, whether that is fear, sad, anger, whatever that might be. Um, So what is the trigger that is bringing on the voice again? So thinking about you know, a couple months ago, my husband and I, we just bought a new house. And in the midst of moving, I remember, oh my gosh, life was chaos. Work stuff was kind of crazy. And I was sitting down one day and I thought, oh man, what if I just started, you know, getting ready for this best rep party that I have in April and just started thinking about, you know, changing my eating patterns again. And I thought, whoa, hold on. What's the trigger here? Okay. My life is chaotic because I'm moving. I have a bunch of plans coming up that I have to be in a swimsuit for and things like that. That's my trigger is I I wanted to get ready for those things, but I don't, I don't need to just kind of all those things were putting me in a a state of emotional dysregulation, essentially. So that's my trigger. So just being able to identify what your trigger is for wanting to restrict, wanting to binge, things like that is really important because if you can identify your trigger, then you can figure out where you want to go and what to change and and not putting judgment on your trigger
0: i think that's a big one too i feel like it's so easy to feel guilty or bad about any trigger
1: because it could be something
0: huge or it could be something little and you're like why does that trigger me it doesn't matter don't judge it a trigger is just a trigger Mm
1: -hmm. yeah absolutely um uh, another big one is not skipping one well, another big tool is not skipping to another coping mechanism for example you may engage in disordered eating and say all right i'm ready to be done with this and then you skip to substance use or i don't know i can't think of another one right now but Social I mean, there's, media. yes exactly there's so many different coping skills so don't coping skill jump it's so easy to do that and you think oh all right i've worked through this i figured it out but are you now using something else that's just masking that stuff and sometimes coping skills are wonderful like i feel like i've talked i've talked about coping skills in somewhat of a negative lens but you know they really range from healthy to unhealthy to frequency again i mean i think about coping skills of, okay, if I have a stressful day and I want to come home and have a glass of wine, that's totally fine. But if I'm doing that every single day and I'm having three glasses of wine a night, that's where it's maybe a little bit unhealthy. But if I do that once in a while to just unwind, that's fine. Or it's yeah. it's really any coping skill is just a coping skill, like you said, and trigger is just a trigger, but it's mm-hmm. it's the frequency, it's the intensity, things like that. It's totally relative.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, I think of exercise. I have a client right now who is working through some of her old disordered eating patterns. And she uses exercise as a tool to help her. And she is one of these people that is so extreme, like when she's in the midst of something, she is in it. So when she's in the midst of her binge eating disorder, it's like three days where she is just like, throwing a pity party. But then her other extreme is, okay, she's just running and running and working out like crazy. And she really struggles with finding balance. So one of our big things is helping her find coping mechanisms in moderation, kind of finding, okay, where is this threshold where it's healthy for you? And it isn't causing all of this physical damage and taking away from your life? And what's something that's more in alignment with your dream life? Because both of these things right now are a little bit too extreme for you. They're not where you want to be. We have to find balance. And I think a lot of times with diet culture, just really anything, uh, people feel like the extreme side of things, either extreme dieting, on a diet, off a diet, or either exercising six days a week or not doing it at all, people feel like that's the only option. Where, like you used with your example of wine, there's a middle ground. It's just that frequency, intensity, and what feels right in accordance to your life and your values.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I liked what you said about in moderation as well because with that on the other side of that is once you start to dial back on some of those coping skills realizing that this is going to hurt making change is going to hurt every ounce of your body of your being is going to yank you back and tell you no no this feels wrong this feels yucky just go back to your disordered eating just go back to your binge eating and so that's, that's why, you know, relapse and setbacks happen. And those are just as normal. I, I tell people that all the time because they come in and they say, oh, I, I did XYZ thing and I, you know, I relapse. I say, okay, I'm almost happy you did because I expect that. And it's normal and it, it helps you see, Oh wow, I really don't want to go back to that. It's part of the journey because any type of change is not linear. It is a absolute roller coaster. So, I think yeah, just just knowing that just the don't judge yourself for all of this, but also expect things are going to be hard. And I I hate saying that. I hate saying you're going to be in a lot of pain, but it'll be great on the other side because I you know, I've been there. I know what it's like to try to make those changes. It feels so yucky, but that's where that motivation comes in of realizing, okay, I don't want to live like this anymore. So I'm willing to put myself in that emotional pain and sit in some of those uncomfortable emotions.
0: Beautifully said. And you know, I think I asked some of my clients this sometimes whenever they're in that space and they're like, this is just really hard. Like, this is so hard. I'll never be able to get past this. I'll never be able to get past my disorder eating. I'll always binge. I always gonna have this issue. I'm like, okay, you've, you've done something hard in your life before. Tell me something hard you've done. Have you given birth to a child and changed your life and become a mother? Have you gone to grad school? Have you ran a marathon? What is something hard that you've done? Have you had a difficult conversation with a loved one? Have you gone through grief? You can do hard things. This is just something different. If you can find evidence in your life that you can do things that are challenging, that can often be fuel and momentum to help you get right back on the horse. When you talk about relapse, I always think about it like this. I say, okay, maybe, maybe you didn't relapse. Maybe you had a lapse. Maybe you just had a little slip back. You were climbing up this big, scary mountain. You slipped, you skinned your knee. Are you going to stop? Are you going to go back to the bottom? Okay, that's a relapse. Are you going to pick yourself back up and keep going up? Okay, then you just had a little lapse. It's normal. Nobody's not going to climb up a big mountain and not have a little bit of a slip. So it's okay to mess up. It's totally normal.
1: Every single time you decide to keep going, you're
0: rewiring your brain for
1: change. So kudos. Mm -hmm. Yes. I I like that metaphor a lot. I'm probably going to steal that.
0: (laughs) I'm sure I pulled it from something else that I saw. (laughs) I was thinking when you were talking about triggers, a big one is, especially with eating, we hear emotional eating a lot. Emotional binge eating, emotional eating. And I know for me, one of my biggest triggers is when I feel lonely. When I feel isolated, I feel different than everybody else, or I feel like I got my heart broken, that's when I want to eat. And then I always feel worse after. So for me, recognizing loneliness and then not judging the fact or feeling bad about being lonely and not beating myself up or feeling like I'm weird for having these feelings, recognizing that it's normal to have emotions has really helped me redirect myself into different coping mechanisms that are more proactive. And I rarely have those times anymore where I emotionally eat in excess. It happens once in a while because I'm human and I'm normal, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't happen because I was able to admit to myself like, Hey, I've got triggers and I'm going to mess up sometimes. It doesn't make me unworthy. It doesn't make me any less than.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, emotions are the spice of life, but people hate them. <laughs> people hate to feel their emotions. And that's why coping skills are a thing is, you know, and, and why people get so dove into certain coping skills is because anytime sad comes up, anytime fear or anger comes up, people want to mask that with something. So you don't like to feel that because, you know, for example, maybe as a kid you were taught anger is a bad emotion. So anytime you feel an ounce of anger, you say, Ooh, I'm gonna you know, eat right now, or I'm going to restrict, or I'm going to use a substance or whatever that might be. So yeah, it's, it's just interesting to look at emotions as a normal part of life because uh, we don't like them more often than not.
0: Kind of a thought that I had, and I was talking about this with one of my clients today, because she's a real creative spirit, is how a lot of times she would recognize uh, her feelings of sadness or loneliness the same way she thought they were bad and she was using them to eat. And I was like, you're a really creative person. Think about all of these amazing artists and people who are musicians and entrepreneurs and all of these people from any creative lens have used negative emotions to really fuel a passion. It doesn't have to be something major, but I find that using negative feelings to fuel something creative and make something beautiful not only helps me feel better in the moment, but then I walk away feeling really proud and I've created something and I didn't turn to food. So that's always one of the tools that I offer people who are open to it is using the sadness or the emotion that triggers the eating as fuel for something more creative. And it doesn't have to be your arts and crafts lens of creative. It could be as creative as, you know, organizing your closet or writing in your journal or creating something out of nothing, just an idea or it doesn't matter. Using it as a fuel and recognizing that negative emotions are often really inspiring.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the more that you look at emotions like that and kind of sit in those emotions, the better you get at feeling those emotions and less difficult it seems to do those types of things over time.
0: What are some other tools that you have?
1: Yeah, so, you know, just one of my favorite ones is just to tell people what if a seven year old girl came up to you and said, I'm fat and I'm so bad and I'm gonna go eat. What would you tell her? And why are you different than that? You wouldn't tell her like
0: you're bad, you're unworthy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, we think about, you know, we tell ourselves those things in our head, but why would we tell somebody else that? So why do we deserve that? And it's, you know, so often those phrases in our mind come from past trauma, you know, whether that's shame that was inflicted on you, whether you heard those messages from, you know, a parent or a coach or someone like that, but starting to reframe that and think about it as like, you know, why, why would you treat yourself like that when you wouldn't treat someone else like that? And I I don't like the word why, but you know, in that instance, I just kind of gets people thinking about that. Why don't you like the word why? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I think in grad school, we are kind of taught, you know, don't ever ask people, why are you doing that? Or like, why, why, why it can come across as, somewhat judgmental, I think. So I, I try mm-hmm. to avoid that word as much as possible, unless mm-hmm. it is in, you know, it's contextual, but I try to avoid mm-hmm. it. Also, I try to avoid the word should telling people they should do things or shouldn't do things. And this can go along with eating and disordered eating as well as a lot of times we should ourselves. And it sounds funny when I say that, um, but just watching how often we use the word should in our mm-hmm. vocabulary towards ourselves and other people.
0: Oh my gosh, that's so true, especially in the context of food. I should, or context of food, I shouldn't be eating this. I shouldn't be having this cake because it's not on my plan. Or I should be eating this because it's healthy. And then it's almost like that teenage rebellion spirit, and you're just like, no, let's do it anyway. Like screw yep. the rules. But going back to your your point about the little daughter or the little seven-year-old girl, I think that works really well with my clients who have somebody tiny and small in their life, whether it's a mother or an older sister or an aunt. I ask them, do you have a young girl or boy in your family that you love very much? Imagine if they were experiencing all the things that you're experiencing, you would talk to them completely different. So why don't you give yourself the same compassion and well, oops, I shouldn't say why. <laughs> um, you don't do, uh, but it's always funny because it's I get like the sick pleasure of watching them feel stumped. They're like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I would never do that. And I'm like, you're right, you wouldn't.
1: <laughs> but it's a really
0: great thought-provoking question that helps you reframe how you see yourself. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't feel like they are worthy of self compassion and worthy they feel like oh you are not good enough because you can't follow these rules and you can't ever do anything if you can't follow a stinking diet it's really a shame.
1: Yeah, and like I'd said, so much of that comes from ingrained patterns, like we talked about ingrained thoughts. Whether that's you know things that you did yourself with food tracking, things like that, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, mm-hmm. another one that I wanted to mention as well is, and you know, this might sound extremely controversial, but weighing yourself can actually be a good thing. Um, it, mm-hmm. I think, it teaches you emotional regulation. I think. When you see that number, you probably will be triggered early in your journey, but weighing yourself and learning to work through that and accept that, okay, it is okay that I weigh this versus this. And uh, this isn't me saying you need to weigh yourself every day and it's perfect and fine and you should be fine. It's me saying if once in a while you do get weighed at the doctor or you step on the scale at home it's good, it's healthy to be able to work through that, seeing that number and cope through that. And I want to respect as well that some people aren't ready for that in their journey, but learning to be able to do that later on in your journey is extremely important.
0: I love that perspective. I have never thought of it like that, where that emotional regulation piece comes in, where you learn to see a number and not all of a sudden tie up your entire worth or completely let that dictate your day of eating or living. I thought of it like this. I've had some clients where I'm like, you know what, how about you, you know, go to the bathroom after you step on the scale and then step on the scale again. It's going to be a difference. That's how finicky the scale is. It means nothing. You can weigh yourself 12 times a day and you're going to get a different number just based on the natural fluctuations of your body. It's not that big of a deal. I found that that can really help people with that emotional regulation piece too. It's just a number but it's okay, great. Some people get really triggered. They're not ready. They'll spiral out of control. And that's a place to work to.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of um, counselors that do focus specifically on eating disorders have a scale in their office and they literally tell their clients, okay, step on the scale, and then let's talk about how you're feeling, what's going through your head, and work through these emotions in our session. I think it's the perfect place to teach people to be triggered is in a therapy setting in a safe environment so that they can later do that on their own. Hmm.
0: Interesting. That's amazing. I've never thought of that before. I've never considered that as a therapeutic tool. That's beautiful. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. (sighs) Um, Tools. I know you said you had a lot of good tools. Do you want to share a few more? Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know. Honestly, we've we've sprinkled a lot of them throughout our conversation already. I, I like that this has just kind of been a flow. Um. But I think an obvious one is just purging your social media. I mean, looking at the different messages that you are receiving on the daily, whether that's Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, um, things like that. I mean, what messages are going into your brain every single day for how many hours? I mean, I will fully admit I am on Instagram a lot. I, I do enjoy Instagram. I love seeing pictures of other people, but I've had to purge my followers often or who I follow at least because they weren't serving who I want to be right now and the mindset that I want to be in.
0: Beautiful. You know, you just send something that reminds me of a tool. If you don't mind me sharing it, a good one. I have two good ones that I'd like to share. One of them would be just like you said, the person that you want to be. I have a lot of my clients, especially before we start a daily accountability program, which is where we work every single day with the client virtually, and I have them get really crystal clear on the kind of person they want to be. I find a lot of people don't spend a lot of time reflecting and getting. A clear image, idea, vision, goal, North Star, whatever you want to call it, of the kind of person they want to be. I always call it the ideal you avatar. So, mm-hmm. it would be the ideal Morgan avatar. What does she look like? What does she do? How does she feel around food? When she's eating out with friends, what's it like? When she's cooking at home, what kinds of meals is she eating? What kind of movement is she doing? What does her day look like? How much money is she making? So, getting really clear on the ideal version of who you want to be. And then thinking about how food plays a role in that. And we work together to make sure that vision is really healthy and realistic. But 100% of the time, no one's going to be like, okay, the ideal version of me is using food as a coping mechanism. And the ideal version of me is not sitting there on social media, or on my fitness pal, tracking every single thing at group dinner. So once they can see that, oh, this is not who I actually want to be, then we can start putting in some new Coping mechanisms, some new things in their life that get them closer to where they want to be. I have a client doing it right now. He really wants to cut back on how much he socially drinks. Just doesn't fit in his ideal avatar of himself. And so, a lot of times, we're talking about the ideal version of you. Do when he goes to this party, is he going to have twenty beers, or is he going to have two and call it a day? And so, when you get a crystal clear vision, you can recognize, ah, you know, some of these coping mechanisms, these eating patterns, really don't serve who I want to be.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, gosh, I, I like that tool a lot. And I think I'm going to steal that as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's funny, I, we got it from, well, I got it from, um, you know, when you start a business, you talk about who your ideal client avatar is, and then you create a lot of your content uh, for the person you're speaking to to really serve them. And you can do the same thing with
1: yourself. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah um so one last tool that i can mention is well i don't know if it's necessarily a tool but just something to think about or ponder if you are wanting to make changes around your eating patterns is not changing too much at once mm-hmm. you know a lot i see so many people that say okay i'm gonna Stop restricting my food. I'm gonna take a break from working out. I'm gonna, you know, cut out all these other things. Or on the opposite side, they say, I'm gonna start eating healthy. I'm gonna work out. I'm gonna purge my social media. I'm gonna go for walks every day. And it's like, whoa, hit the brakes. We can't do too much at once. That is way too much stress and chaos on our bodies on our brains and a lot of times when we do too much that can lead to you know a faster relapse and the kind of the all or nothing mentalities um so i I say let's what is the most important thing or or what is the easiest thing it kind of gives people a choice of you know what do you necessarily want to change what's going to maybe be the best for you right now to make a change in in what area and focusing on just little things at a time can be a good way to get started and you know looking at those little accomplishments little goals i'm reading a book right now and um the author talked about maybe you just want to start drinking more water and so every single morning you keep a promise to yourself that you are going to drink a glass of water during your morning routine and that's it that's all you change and you can slowly start to build your confidence in yourself Mm -hmm. and i think that's important Keyword there,
0: you know what's beautiful? You say confidence. I have so many people when they tell me like, why are you? Why are you wanting to change your eating habits? Why are you trying to lose weight, get healthy, blah blah? They want to be more confident, and I'm like, okay, well the way you get confident is by what you do. So if you can start to create evidence that you can do things, you build confidence and you become that confident person even before you hit whatever health or weight goal you're trying to achieve or that you think is going to bring you confidence. And I love that doing those small things. Makes you feel empowered and giving yourself kudos every single time you do drink your water in the morning, whether it's keeping a little check mark tally in your planner or whether it's tracking water in your daily agenda of, okay, I had this many glasses. You start to collect concrete evidence that you can do hard things. I've had a lot of people do um, what I call the top three. So they pick three things, that's it. Nothing else matters. Three, anything else they do is bonus. Three habits to change. They can't be overwhelming, but they have to be a little challenging. There's a nice little fine line where they don't make you feel stressed, but they're not easy. So it might be every morning having a glass of water, every day getting 10 minutes of movement, and every day eating a vegetable lunch. Literally, that's easy. And if you can do that over and over again, it becomes habitual, and then you start to rewire your brain to automatically want the water in the morning. And once that becomes easy, that's when you take that
1: out of your top three, And you insert a new habit that helps you continue to level up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so much about rewiring, rewiring that brain, rewiring those patterns, rewiring your body and brain to go together with all that stuff too. A lot of times there's so much disconnect with those as well.
0: It takes a lot of time.
1: It takes time. I think
0: that's the hardest part. We're humans. Just. We want our Domino's pizza in 30 minutes. Oh, yes. We, or I guess people, do so you don't even do that anymore? That's so millennial me. Uber eats. You want your right. ASAP. <laughs> you want your online shopping process order to be done from your couch right away. We are just people who want things really fast. These okay. things just don't happen fast. Sorry, Charlie. There's no way around it. Changing your habits takes time for some people it is that 30 day gold standard for some people it's a week for some people it's six months so you kind of just have to let go of any kind of quick timeline and enjoy the journey as they say Mm -hmm. yes absolutely absolutely so we've talked about a lot of tools yes is there (laughs) any Things before we wrap up today's podcast. Are there any final words that you want to give to listeners right now? I'm thinking somebody who might be hearing all these things and recognizing and admitting that yeah, they have some disordered eating patterns. They might be aware of it. They might have some idea of their triggers, but they're not really sure how to implement some of these tools or where to go next. What would be your best advice?
1: Yeah. So I think just understanding that it's okay to not be okay. I mean, that's such a phrase now in our world. I've seen that so much on social media and on, you know, the platforms that I'm involved in. But it's okay to not be okay and to ask for help. Asking for help is a sign of strength, I, I like to say. And so where to start with all of this? I think, you know, I always tell people it sounds very... Um, basic, but go to your county health and human service department. (laughs) They are going to have all the resources. They literally build resource documents of dieticians, counselors, um, you know, eating Twitter clinics, um, just different things like that. Or maybe you want to just have a health coach or whatever Mm -hmm. that looks like and look up resources. You know, Google obviously is a thing in our world, but I I look for reputable sources, good reviews, things like that on Mm -hmm. different clinicians and professionals. But There's so many apps nowadays, too. Oh, my goodness. And obviously, we live in a social world. So there's Facebook groups. There's apps. There's just so many resources. So you are not alone in this. There is something for you. It's just a matter of figuring out what that is. And on that Mm -hmm. note as well is I think there's a statistic out there that it takes about three therapist to find the therapist that you click with and you know sometimes it's the first one maybe sometimes it's the fifth one but approximately it takes a couple of therapists to figure out what you're looking for in a therapist someone that you click with someone that understands you and sometimes too for you to feel ready to make changes too mm-hmm. so not giving up after you know the, the first try with a dietitian, a therapist a health coach whoever that might be
0: agreed beautiful Well, Morgan, I appreciate you coming on here and and sharing your wisdom. I appreciate you taking the time to talk in depth about tools and share stories and share your own story. It's really appreciated. I hope to have you on the podcast again sometime.
1: Yeah, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. I love this. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the
0: Nutrition Awareness Podcast. And if you did find it helpful and want to share it with the whole world, screenshot this episode and tag us on Instagram in your stories at
1: nutrition.awareness so we can connect with you. To get notified about the next episode of Nutrition Awareness, be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And to create
0: your own personalized nutrition plan with us, be sure to schedule your virtual or in-person consultation on our website, www.orlandodietitian.com.
1: Now get out there, fuel up and live your healthiest life. We'll see you on the next episode.